0: The novel begins, 124 was spiteful, full of a baby's venom. The women in the house knew it, and so did the children. Already, the novel has situated us in a place between opposites that are conjoined, that are spatial, Spatial because they are narrative, they're in the novel. And spatial because they are contextualized by the situations. Um, 124 is spiteful. When the reader first encounters those words, you and I, the readers, have no idea what 124 is. We don't even know if it's 124, maybe it's 124, you know, then, you know. but what we do know, especially me, because I'm so mathematically challenged, you know, is that numbers, you know, aren't spiteful, but, you know, these two, you know, are, you know, then, you know, and we are forced, you know, um, as, you know, readers, you know, to begin to see a relationship, you know, That's not normative. Numbers are not spiteful. The second construction, which, by the way, is not a sentence, it's a fragment. So at the level, literally, of language, of syntax, of simple sentences, the novel is doing the same thing. The the tension is between normative constructions of sentences, um, which are independent, you know, clauses and fragments, you know, full of a baby's venom is a fragment. And it's also a gothic site because of uh, the tension, you know. Snakes, reptiles, are venomous. Babies, who can be really troublesome in all kinds of ways, you know, but they're not venomous, you know. know, So it's another juxtaposition, you know, that challenges normative constructions. The last you know, one does as well, and it's you know, um, also you know, um, a fragment, well, sentence. The women in the house knew it, and so did the children. You know, the tension there is between the reader and the children and women in the house you know, then, you know, who know something that the reader doesn't. So the disconnect is between the reader and the text. And that disconnect is even more emphatic because the novel is already suggesting that this is a space that the reader has to fill. We have to catch up then because the women in the house knew it and so did the children. They apparently even know that 124 is a house then, right? The women in the house knew it. Um, But the reader um, um, doesn't. So So already, from the beginning of the novel, first sentence, Morrison is letting us know in the most graphic way that we are entering spaces in this novel that are going to compel us to, at the very least, to revisit, to modify, to revise to think about how we see the world especially in moral terms one of the novel's most central gothic constructions then is monstrous motherhood what setha does you know in the shed in the barn challenges Normative constructions of maternity, motherhood, and the relationship to children. What she does pushes the boundaries between what is human and what is not human, or monstrous. And the novel compels us to increase our vocabularies, then, to create a term that doesn't exist because it's outside of the normative, monstrous motherhood. Yeah. Which, parenthetically, is not the first time you know, in Toni Morrison's fiction where she's considered that particular binary. You know, 14 years earlier, in her second novel, Sula, you know, yeah. it's the first instance you know, of a mother who kills her child. You know, the, the differences are you know, that you know, Eva kills her son Plum, and Plum is a grown man. He is you know, a heroin addict, and he is slowly killing himself. You know. And Eva, you know, for reasons that I won't go into, decides to help him to help him do quickly you know, what he can't you know, do by himself. So some of the complicated moral issues that the novel raises, that Beloved raises, were already there. Morrison already thinking um, about those issues. Already from the very first novel, in fact, in the bluest eye, Morrison is concerned with parenting, with family, and with familial um, relationships. Okay, this essay is for Gail O'Donnell Bryant. In terms of what the 18th century optimistically called the Enlightenment and Age of Reason, the measure of intelligence, reason, moral probity, and the sine qua non of what it means to be fully human, has been the demonstrable ability to read and write. This opening statement is a commonplace in the history of ideas that shaped the 18th century, and I, like other writers, have stressed its seminal role in the social construction of race, literary production, and the institution of slavery itself. This is how Henry Louis Gates, Jr., Harvard professor and director of the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute, makes this point. The creation of formal literature could be no mean matter in the life of the slave, since the sheer literacy of writing was the very commodity that separated animal from human. Slave from citizen, object from subject. Reading, and especially writing, in the life of the slave represented a process larger than even mere physical manumission. Since mastery of the arts and letters was Enlightenment Europe's sign of that solid line of division between being human and being a thing. What Beloved does, the novel, is to smudge, blur, almost erase that not so solid line. Asserting the act of writing more personally, but no less politically than Gates, Andre Blycaston believes, quote, to write is to blacken whiteness, to fill in gaps, to dress wounds. And more personally still, Dorothy Allison, novelist, memoirist, and author of Bastard Out of Carolina, and a survivor of serial child rape, simply puts it this way, I write to save my life. The act of writing and reading, which implies intentionality and agency, represents a process larger than even mere physical manumission, as Gates notes, because it encompasses life itself and performs all the protean acts that, as Blykasten, Allison, and Gates' stress, make life meaningful. So I begin by cautiously circling my principal text, Toni Morrison's fifth novel, Beloved, framing it with writers who are also readers, writing on writing, because I want to situate this novel's central concerns with literacy and orality, with writing, reading, and speaking, within its own aesthetic, racialized, gendered, and politicize framework and link it to the rich literary tradition about which this novel and Toni Morrison speak. So outward again, centrifugally, like a rodeo writer's looping lariat, to lasso just two more signifying writers and texts for context before drawing down on beloved. The first text is from part one, Southern Nights, it's chapter 13, of Richard Wright's autobiography, Black Boy. My faded post-it note page marker simply calls this episode the library card. How many of you have read Richard Wright's Black Boy? Good, you'll recognize this then. This is the chapter where a borrowed library card becomes a passport to the world beyond Jim Crow's systemic segregation and toward what Wright, in a poem he wrote, calls the warmth of other suns. I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown, I was taking a part of the South the transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. The Passport begins with books from the all-white library secured with a borrowed library card of a compassionate white man. A block away from the library, I opened one of the books and read a title, A Book of Prefaces. I was nearing my 19th birthday, and I did not know how to pronounce the word preface. Preface. I thumbed the pages and saw strange words and strange names. I shook my head, disappointed. What this nominally literate reader slowly realizes in the weeks that follow is the relationship between saying and doing. That reading and writing were a form of agency and political power. H.L. Mencken was using words as a weapon, the young Richard Wright says, using them as one would use a club. Could words be weapons? Then maybe, perhaps, I could use them as a weapon. No, it frightened me. I read on, and what amazed me was not what he said, But how on earth anybody had the courage to say it. And this too. I had once tried to write, had once reveled in feeling, had let my crude imagination roam, but the impulse to dream had been slowly beaten out of me by experience. Now it surged up again, and I hungered for books, new ways of looking, and seeing. It was not a matter of believing or disbelieving what I read, but of feeling something new, of being affected by something that made the look of the world different. What an 18-year-old black boy living in the Jim Crow South of the early 20th century feels is what an incorrigible black woman shackled to the peculiar institution of slavery in the mid 19th century knows instinctively that definitions belong to the definers, not the defined. It is this effective connectivity to literacy that propels both through a world that insists they are merely commodities definitions without the agency to define their own black bodies and minds the second framing american text is by charles fraser in coal mountain when the full day's work is done ada monroe who owns the failing farm at Black Cove, and Ruby Thews, Ada's hired help and friend, spend time with Homer's Odyssey. Because Ruby is illiterate, Ada reads aloud and Ruby listens, enraptured and amused by the tragicomic collisions of fate and character played out epically on Homer's human chessboard. Ruby returns the absolute joy of listening and being read to measure for measure by teaching Ada to read the natural world where Ruby's fluency and knowledge are unmatched. Through Ruby's persistent questions, inexhaustible work ethic, and encyclopedic book knowledge of the natural world, Ada gradually masters the mysteries of Black Cove Farm. And more importantly, she finds a vocabulary to express her own access to feelings, choked off, girdled, actually, by the snobbery of Charleston, South Carolina's wealth and privilege. The metaphor of blockage, writer's block, here is too apt to resist making explicit. So I'm going to make it explicit. (laughs) The epistolary form, handwritten letters, that orality and literacy assume in Cold Mountain repeatedly find Ada and W.P. Inman, the fugitive Confederate soldier she loves, both balling up valuable writing paper in frustrated attempts to say in the elusive right words and in whole sentences what the straight-jacketed customs of mid-19th century Southern culture make almost unsayable. After one such effort to express the inexpressible, Ada blew the paper dry and then scanned over what she had written with a critical eye. She mistrusted her handwriting, for no matter how she tried, she had never mastered the flooring horals and acts of fine penmanship. The characters her hand insisted on were instead blocky and dense as runes. Even more than the penmanship, she disliked the tenor of the letter. She balled up the paper, and threw it into the boxwood bush aloud she said, "That's just the way people talk, and has nothing to do with the real matter at hand. The real matter at hand, the one that writers like Fraser Wright and Tony Morrison are so invested in, is implicit in the first half of my title. Definitions." the definers and the defined this alliterative paradigm of power so inextricably bound up with literacy and orality is dramatically developed on pages 225 and 230 you know, uh, you know, of your you know, text yeah, and is the first powerful example you know of a gothic site of gothic intervention a piece of chalk a slate board a vertical line delimiting a slave's animal and human traits a measuring string setha secretly listens as schoolteacher and instructs his nephews on human nature And while she can decipher no more than 75 words in English, the authorial narrator stresses, she knows instinctively and effectively that unfamiliar words she sees and hears, like characteristics, will not, cannot, favor her. As the defined object that is not white, or male, or free, or literate. She can only be what language signifies. Setha does not possess the legal right, nor possess the full power of agency, as Andre Blykasten asserts about writing to black and whiteness, to fill in gaps, to dress wounds. And still, and but... And however, and notwithstanding, (laughs) Setha's brutally loving assault on her children in the barn is also a desperate assault on language and the institution of slavery's hegemonic control of both definitions and the human chattel it defines. Over there outside this place where they would be safe, Setha says to Paul D. in a failed effort to justify her seemingly monstrous actions that garners his understanding and maybe his compassion, but not his approval. This is page 192. The killing or murder language matters here, <clears throat> of children by anyone, but especially by their mother, corresponds to no definition of safe in any dictionary I possess, unabridged or not. In Setha's meager lexicon of 75 words, however, and the peculiar, inverted, irrational construction of reality that normalizes Almost any form of human bondage and degradation, safe can mean death from a rusted saw or a smashed skull on a barn floor, which can mean protection, be salvation, be a mercy. Because the truth was simple, Sethe says. Not a long, drawn-out record of flowered shifts, tree cages, selfishness, ankle ropes, and wells. Simple. She was squatting in the garden, and when she heard them coming and recognized schoolteachers' hat, she heard wings. And if she thought little hummingbirds stuck their needle beaks right through her headcloth, into her hair, and beat their wings. And if she thought anything, it was no. No, no. No, no, no. Simple. She just flew. Collected every bit of life she had made, all the parts of her that were precious and fine and beautiful, and carried, pushed, dragged them through the veil, out, away, over there, where no one could hurt them. And still page 192. In these pivotal, Gothic places, both the anxious attempts in several places in the text to persuade Paul D., and later Denver and Beloved herself, on pages 295 and 296. And most dramatically here, in the Gothic site, the barn has become, in these ways and places, Setha has become a definer, speaking back to the master narrative of slavery, challenging, subverting, a hegemonic language that does not recognize her definitions, her natural right to define herself and to claim what is precious and fine and beautiful. I was that big, Paul D. I have one final Gothic intervention to talk about one that complicates this novel's concerns with literacy, orality, and power more than any other place. And I've saved it for last for that reason. This one circles back to Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain, to the reciprocal acts of literacy and orality Ada Monroe and Ruby Fuse perform, Ada reading aloud, to an illiterate Ruby who in turn teaches an uninformed Ada to read the physical world all around her. Go ahead, Ruby gently badgers Ada as they sit side by side in the hayloft one afternoon, looking out over the expanse of Black cove Farm. Name me four plants on that hillside that in a pinch you could eat. How many days to the next moon? Name two things blooming now and two things fruiting. Ada did not yet have those answers, the authorial narrator says, but she could feel them coming. And Ruby was her principal text. Such an inspiriting, felicitous pean to sisterhood To bonded friendship here, but oh, so much more politically complicated in Morrison's novel. Okay, you know where I'm going. So let's interrogate that textual place closely. Here is my final gothic deployment of definitions, definers, and the defined. Literacy and orality in Beloved. Page numbers, um, 35 to 45 in your text, as well as 92 to 100. When two throwaway people, two lawless outlaws, a slave and a barefoot white woman with unpinned hair meet on their intersecting roads to freedom, they are both fugitives from different houses of bondage. The untenable abuses of indentured servitude for Amy Denver are more than sufficient warrant to run away to a place called Boston for the softness she associates, sight unseen, with something called velvet. Velvet. There, on a riverbank, in the cool of a summer evening, struggling under a shower of silvery blue, Amy and Setha offer the possibility of a transracial sisterhood and solidarity that analogizes Ada and Ruby's transcendence of the class and culture that divides you know, them. Your back got a whole tree on it in bloom. What God have in mind, I wonder. Page 93. It's a choke cherry tree in full bloom with, quote, tiny little cherry blossoms just as white, Amy announces. And it's also an interpretation, an act of reading Setha's lacerated, bloody back as though it were a text. And only Amy can perform it because the customs, conventions, and laws that enforce indentured servitude do not legally, forcibly, or universally prohibit bound white persons from acquiring basic reading and writing skills. Amy Denver may be only marginally more literate than Setha and seems like Setha and Paul D, that ain't her mouth, to rely on pictures and images, but she exerts a power that is implicitly political and a form of agency that Setha and Paul D lack. Literally, and figuratively, Setha's back is written in the violent language of slavery. And in the 1850s, precious few black bodies, for example, those who have been taught or given basic tools to teach themselves, like Stampede or Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs, few possessed the ability to read and write. There is a power differential that is ultimately based on both the politics of race and gender that makes Amy, however compassionately and humanely, she acts a definer who controls the definitions that define Sethe. The interpretation Amy imposes onto Sethe's back and her bondage glosses not only the hegemony of masters and slaves, but reflects Amy's own irrepressibly optimistic, glass-half-full, deistic worldview. What God have in mind, I wonder. Lord, what a way to die. You're going to die in here, you know. Ain't no way out of it. Thank your Maker, I come along, so you wouldn't have to die in them weeds. The definitions on Setha's back are written in the brutal ideology of nineteenth century slavery and are indelible, incapable of erasure or revision or any subversive interpretation by Setha herself. The years following the crossroads meeting between a nearly dead pregnant slave woman and a barefoot white girl with unpinned hair who brings Setha's baby into this here world do not change the fact, as Setha says to a disbelieving Paul D., that I got a tree on my back. When he approaches Setha's back and lowers her bodice to see for himself, He is not print literate, remember. He moves his hands over the patchwork of scars, touching them, reading them like braille. Neither Paul D. nor Setha, who cannot even see her back without a mirror, can supplant Amy Denver's interpretation. They must settle for the definitions of the other, until the hard won agency to be each other's own best thing is possible. This transformation will require, finally, as Tony Morrison stressed in a nineteen ninety nine interview with Michael Silblatt, Silverblatt, getting quote to a place where the love is generous where love is balanced, neither in extremis, destructively narcissistic, nor self-denyingly altruistic. And finally, using her own definitions to define the black body and a vocabulary that conjugates and signifies on remembering and possession and the power of language To black and whiteness, to fill in gaps, to dress wounds. Baby Suggs makes this life affirming point in her sermon, Among the Trees. Here, in this place, here, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people. They do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up. Kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together stroke them on your face because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put into it, To nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavings instead. No, they do not love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Feet that need to rest. And to dance. Backs that need support. Shoulders that need arms. Strong arms, I'm telling you. And all my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck. Unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it. Grace it stroke it, and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just assume slop for hogs, you got to love them. The dark and dark liver, love it, love it. And the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than lungs that have yet to draw free air, more than your life holding womb and your life giving private parts, Hear me now, love your heart, for this, this is the prize.